0: Hello listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Science, Technology and Society, a podcast for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chad Velasik. Today we'll be talking to Nicholas Bauck about his book, A Geography of Digestion, Biotechnology in the Kellogg Serial Enterprise. This book touches upon a history of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and John Kellogg, specifically Kellogg's connection with the digestive system to material processes and assemblages, such as uh, the urban sewer infrastructure, agricultural production, and the food production within the sanitarium itself. So give me. let's go ahead and um, welcome Nick to our show. Welcome, Nicholas.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me, Chad.
0: Great. So I was wondering if we could begin by uh, you just telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, my my professional background is in uh, geography. I am um, um, discovered geography um, in my undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, and uh, ended up majoring in geography and in some ways kind of never looked back. Um, I took a, a break from... From school and academia for a while, but then um, returned to get a master's degree um, in geography. At which point, I got in which, which was marked the beginning of my interest in um, food studies. Um, at that time, I was really interested in uh, the the some of the legal naming of foods, and particularly in the European Union, where they have these geographical place indicators um so i got really interested in some of the legal history of that um uh, geographical naming of foods uh and then uh for my my um um graduate school, school for my phd um i went to ucla which has a which at the time at least had a um a, a, weight, a heavily weighted um humanistic and cultural and historical geography department um, which is what I was interested in doing. I was, um, I've always kind of been drawn to um, <clears throat> historical geography and and um, cultural geographic uh, theory as it applies to space and environment and landscape. So uh, at UCLA, I continued that interest in um, food studies, but got um, sort of came across this what I c- conceived of as um sort of a gap in the way people were talking about um food geography and both in terms of um production which 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 it was um um really heavily influenced by like political economy discussions and um and political ecology um like how, how landscapes are made by economies and food growing landscapes. Um <clears throat> but then also within consumption food consumption studies um, uh, 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 were really focused on uh, sort of cultural attributes of um, um, why and how people eat what they do in certain places. And in neither in, in of those conversations uh, were people explicitly talking about um, digestion or the process of digestion. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Now, um, maybe there's something I could say about um, digestion and uh, as a, as a fundamental part of eating, um, uh, and how that relates to kind of a food studies or a food geography discussion. So that's how I got into the digestion thing. And then kind of fell, fell backwards. Um, while I was writing my, uh, doing my graduate work and writing my dissertation, kind of fell backwards into the, the Kellogg story. Um, um, in part because, um, uh, John Kellogg, who was the person who ran the the um, company in its early years, at least, um, was so kind of, a, he was obsessed with a lot of things, but he was obsessed, one of the things he was ob- obsessed with was digestion, and he wrote a lot about it. So it was a good way to start really thinking about, like, um, how does digestion work for this person in this time, or how did he think of it? Um, how did he incorporate it into his medical practice and then eventually into his um, food production regime. Um, and, and sort of the, the geographical twist uh, then is um, um, how do you situate that, um, you know, time con- contextual story uh, into place? What's, what, is the, what is the place of where this was t- happening, which is Battle Creek, Michigan? Um, and the, the kind of upper Midwest and Michigan landscapes, how, do, how did those play into the way Kellogg was able to practice his um, health philosophy of kind of digestive reductionism? Um, and how did it make the growth of this um, type of eating, um, eating cereal in particular, breakfast cereal that, that is now um, ubiquitous in many parts of the world? um so that's a, that's um a little bit of my background as it relates to this project um, um i can tell you more about my background if you want i'll let you um kind of chip in though chat
0: yeah so um i th- i think we could just go ahead and uh and move into the book itself um if that's all right with you um so why don't we why don't we start actually with talking about uh, John Kellogg's background here, because um, the first chapter uh, on the Battle Creek Sanitarium deals a lot with his, his family and, and religious background and into his uh, medical training and eventually um, heading the sanitarium. So could you tell us a bit about about his trajectory there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um so it's it's important for readers to know that um as as a case study the book is um centered on the the character of um John Kellogg who is um one of two brothers um the Kellogg brothers who kind of ran this cereal business for its first 50 years basically. Um, they started uh Well, so John, John Kellogg, um, was a doctor, um, and he, uh, grew up in Michigan and became a doctor. And, um, as he was becoming a doctor, this, this path toward medicine, uh, this would have been the 1870s when he was doing this. So quite early in terms of like formal, um, medical schools, um, um, and in terms of the, uh, sort of increasing access to um uh, things like bacteriology and um scientific discourse within in medicine. He was kind of in the, the 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 earlier edges of that in medical schools. Um and he the whole time he was doing this it was kind of it was wedded with this relationship he had with the Seventh day Adventist Church, which had um just itself come into being, uh, in the 1860s as, um, a new, um, Protestant denomination, uh, that was based on millennialism. So in other words, a, a impending end of the universe, uh, was, was coming soon. And there was this, um, theology of, um, preparing oneself and one's body for that impending, um, end of the world uh so that's kind of that's where he came from in terms of um like kind of his intellectual milieu and um essentially what happened and what i talk about in this chapter is how that um that science uh that science background kind of um was played out in the in the context of his religious upbringing and his religious benefactors really importantly So the Battle Creek Sanitarium, this, the place of, um, health that I talk a lot about in this, in this book, um, was started and funded and founded by this new religious organization, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, essentially as a, um, one as a, um, uh, architectural manifestation of their theology and their health philosophies, um, health philosophies being things like um take really good care of your body don't eat meat don't drink caffeine tobacco they're like kind of these (laughs) like for for various reasons were seemingly ahead of their time um in the, the way we talk about how to be healthy now um they were saying this you know in the 1860s and 70s and um um yeah, so they they uh, and then too, The reason for the Battle Creek Sanitarium was that it was their kind of business model. It's how they stayed afloat as a new um, organization. They got people to come and stay at the at the retreat slash clinic slash hospital slash resort um, <laughs> in this kind of idyllic, um, woodsy Michigan setting. Uh, and people came from from all over mostly the east east coast to kind of take a break, pay them some money, um, go through this health um, regimen to get make their bodies clean and healthy and ready to go back to the urban urban um rat race um, <clears throat> so Kellogg um was appointed um sort of the the director. Um, and starting in 1876 was appointed director of this sanitarium and took on, he, he took it on completely. He just kind of threw himself into it and, uh, did advertising, promoting, um, did his own kinds of research. Um, some of which were really wacky. If people know the story of John Kellogg, they know a lot of what he did was really strange. He had like electric beds and light baths and these abdominal punching machines and uh, all these these things that we kind of look at now and say that that's like I don't know if I need to do that to, <laughs> to be <laughs> to like have a healthy body uh, um, yeah that,
0: that you mentioned like uh, in the book to uh, the road to Wellville um, the movie and uh, that's that's how I am familiar with this story at all I used, used to watch that I don't know why my parents let me, but they, I would just watch that movie kind of over and over again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I like, and it was interesting in, in reading that book and watching the movie again for this, when I was doing the research for this book, um, it was interesting to know like that, you know, it's, it's this like, you know, imagined fiction, but definitely based in (laughs) some reality, like they're, they're going to take their, creative license with making that that story um uh, but a lot of the things that we that we find absurd were in fact definitely documentable things that that kellogg uh, did um like the kind of
0: Yeah, the machines in particular yeah
1: yeah and they they have them um it's interesting they have them on display at the battle creek um heritage center um you can go look at these they're very mechanical they're very, they're you know they're trying to be very cutting edge a lot of them are like electricity based um which then was of course a really big deal um <coughs> so you know they're trying to like it's this kind of new Gidget, GASMO, like for better health thing um that was going on um yeah so there there there's some of that um there's a lot of um 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 Um, what's I guess what's the word like conservative I guess we would say like health advice like very conservative sexual health advice Um, uh, striking even by today's by today's standards Um, um, but but one of the things that that Kellogg was persistent about throughout his published career at least um, the, the, the things that he wrote about consistently was this concern with digestion Um, and so I'm kind of in that first chapter to get, to kind of get back to your question. That's, um, that's what I'm trying to do is set this up as like, who's this character who had such an influence? Where did, where did he, a little bit of where did he come from? What were his intellectual, um, precedents? Who were the people he was surrounding himself with? So in, in the first chapter you'll see, um, like some of the debates that went on, uh, between the spiritual leaders of the church and appointing a director of their, uh, their, you know, their sanitarium wellness center place. Um, uh, and there's, so there's like these some conflicts that ensued about how that should be operated. Um, and Kellogg kind of found himself uh, at the, in the, um, the, the diplomatic center of enough of those convers- conversations that he kind of emerged as the person uh who, who to whom they granted the the keys to the place and he kept them until his death in the uh 1930s i think um, uh he was or he was director until the 1930s at least um, uh so yeah that's a little bit of the the background for the first chapter i think key there is probably or another key there i should say is um um i get i get um i I get really interested in um the geographical notion of place and as it applies to um uh the the sanitarium and its grounds um themselves so you know there's a there's a lineage of um um historical geographical writing about um how pl- how place functions how place acts as like a um, uh, a bundler basically of of different uh, social and environmental attributes that that make this this unique thing this um this the the, the point of which in this book is that for people to experience Kellogg's brand of healing, they had to like get on a train and go to Michigan to go to battle Creek. Like you had to be in the building, like with the, the architecture of the building um, did things uh, that allowed his brand of healing to happen. Um, and not least um, and, uh, and also including things like the, the slope of the hill and the soil around um at least this is how they talked about it right um um, so they they were very in in, into that notion of of selling the place as much as they were selling an idea which i think is really interesting um from a um you know from an introductory first chapter sort of hey this is like an interesting geographical story here's why
0: and and so who are they who are they trying to to get out there could you talk a little bit about the, the the people that uh trekked out there to the sanitarium
1: yeah, so these were, um, middle upper class, um, again, mostly people coming from the East Coast, um urban areas, um, uh, but also a large group of, you know, a large constituency would have been from Chicago. Um, and it, it really was, it was the, it, it was an, um, white up, middle upper class, um, mostly moneyed, um, oftentimes, um, famous, um, they had, um, um there's a list of famous people but people like the the um rockefeller's uh Ford, people like that would um come here um presidents would come and get their picture taken um or stay for a couple nights um um and um so it was this kind of eliteist prestige thing to do like i can take a week off i can go to Battle Creek, um, and stay, be diagnosed by this, um, person who seen, who, who claims to have, um, insights on how, uh, the body functions in certain ways that are going to make me feel more energized or more, um, capable of doing, um, my work better. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting, even just saying that it's interesting to put in the, in the, <laughs> in in the context of how we talk about um, our relationship to like a capitalist economy today, where, you know, it's like, there's all kinds of programs like that. You know, I'm thinking like SLN in Northern California, for example, it's like this like super special retreat kind of yoga place where you go and um, cure your body and mind and get ready to like reenter as a new person into back into this, Um, society that one cannot take on on its own um so i think kellogg was really um you know he was performing that role as well um at this time in the late 19th century um of a kind of hey you need a need a need a break come out here and chill out for a while
0: (laughs) right and not didn't he also have um like a eugenics conference there too
1: Certainly yeah he would he would have in uh, in later years that probably would have been in the 19 teens um he got really into eugenics um and but in it, it, it when you read kind of the the time periodization of the book um just just for um clarity for listeners is um mostly 1860s through 1900 or so um and but when you read this because the idea of the book is that it's kind of the backstory of the emergence of the corporation, um, so the Kellogg Serial Corporation is something that happened um, in uh, I think it was incorporated in 1913 um, so but yet yeah, so Kellogg is is known to history um, as a eugenicist also, uh, and should be held um, to critical account for that um, as well. Um, it makes sense when you read the backstory um, how he might have arrived at that um, at at hosting eugenics conference or doing lots of writing about it or whatever he did Um, in that it, he was just obsessed with the application of science to anything Um, as many, (laughs) as many people in that time period were. Um, um, So it was, if you could like scientize it, um, he wanted to be a part of it. And if it had to do with humans and human bodies, he wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so I think, I think that comes out in the book of like, Oh, here's this like character who you, you see doing this um, as it pertains to digestion. And it's not like a hard logical leap in the retrospective um, history, like looking at this person in, in his time and place to say that he, he like would have gotten into that stuff.
0: Right. Yeah. which, you talk a bit about, um, in the first and and second chapter. So in the second chapter, um, he's particularly taken by germ theory, um, and how this relates to digestion. So could you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, the second chapter, um, is more, it's a more kind of, uh, deeper dive into, the type of science um, he was um, using um, and adopting to to um, sell to his patients and to keep his benefactors happy and all that. Um, and um, yeah, so he was uh, he got he learned about germ theory in medical school in New York and at and at the Bellevue Hospital and then at the University of Michigan in his medical school and he became. Got really into it. Um, and uh, it comes up frequent early and frequently in his writings about the stomach and about digestion. Um, most notably, there's an 19 or sorry, an 1896 book called The Stomach um, uh, that he wrote. Uh, and in that book he he kind of outlines his look to the uh French bacteriologist, um Charles Bouchard, uh who had this theory of that was called auto intoxication. And so Bouchard was um, observing or or trying to make the case at least that um when uh bacteria sit in the body without movement, uh it creates um poison um or toxins in the body um and so while not untrue in the strictest sense uh, as we understand it today um bouchard and then kellogg by sort of um, a- adoption um took that to a really logical extreme and kellogg applied it to eating and moving through food through the body um so he was like he he was his message, Kellogg's message, at least in 1896, was: um, um food should never stop in your body. Like we have to eat to stay alive, and that's this like unfortunate fact. But I'm going to try to make it so that the food never stops, so that putrefaction and and toxicity never happen. Therefore in your body and therefore all these like ailments will be cured um, as far as things like headaches and backaches and um, you know, hysteria, like you name it, it was related to how cleanly and efficiently and uh, quickly and, and um, how sterile food food could could be in and move through the digestive system. Um, yeah. So it's really that, that Bouchard auto-intoxication thing that kicked off, um what it set it set a program for kelly it set it set a like um 15 to 20 year like plan of action for him where he was he was um trying to um figure out the the exact right foods that would move the best through the body
0: yeah so in the um in this chapter, you also talk about some of the some of the measurements that he did, um, and in terms of how he wanted to get this zero bacteria number that somehow he reported, um, and uh, mm-hmm. and and how that relates to um, you know this idea of, of deviance that you also talk about hmm So um in relation to that, what what were some of the what were some of the measurement uh techniques that, that he used and um could you talk a little bit about how like the it seems like the the patients were were actually pretty uh excited to get these reports um and how that led to a very specific kind of uh diet for them. That they that they often right. it was like- they often went against that because <laughs> Apparently there's a sub-economy <laughs> that you also talk about where they could they can go and and get some meat.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I think it's it's part of the attraction and the salesmanship and the I mean in, in salesmanship in a in a like uh, partly in a huckster sort of way, but partly in a, like, genuinely, this is what we have to offer you. This is, we think we're doing something interesting sort of way. Um, Part of that message was that, like, hey, if you come here and hang out with us at our sanitarium and pay us this fee, like, we're going to, like, we're going to give you an objective answer. We have a way of giving you an objective answer of what your body's doing. um, And then we can know exactly how to fix it. Um, This was... And this is like uh, that, that's a pretty interesting thing in medicine in the eighteen nineties um to to make that promise um, so um people ca- would arrive the uh and say this is again like mid eighteen nineties they would get off the train they would go into the the um sanitarium examination room and they would have um uh they would be examined by uh, to John Kellogg um, at least the first time he had like a whole staff of nurses and stuff um, but he would they they fed the new patients um, a very specific um, um, like test meal usually and this would have been like it's grain based stuff so they gave them like crackers and breads and um, maybe some fruits and things like that um, like dried fruits Um, and then they would, um, have the patient come back, um, like usually later the same day and they actually inserted a tube down the patient's throat and pumped out (laughs) the, the partially digested food. Um, and then measured it for things like, um, um, acidity, how quickly it was digesting, how much proteins were remaining or carbohydrates were remaining in the, the test thing that they gave them they they could do this all numerically and um um, um compare uh what they knew the, the or what they thought at least the food started with to what it was as it was partially digested they could say like okay well after a few hours after let's let's say three exactly hours um you've digested um, 36% of our test meal. Um, and there's this high of a hydrochloric acid level. And therefore, um, you know, we deem you, um, he had all these words like you were either hyperpeptic, hypopeptic, um, um, and ana, anapeptic, um, um, re- uh, respectively, meaning, um, too much acid, not enough acid, or just totally uh, something totally going wrong um, and there were a number of other categories um, and they they charted these out um, they, they 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 would they had things they had limits like um, okay, between five and eight percent is um, hypopeptic between uh, sixty two and sixty eight percent or this level of um, whatever they're measuring for um, is um, is this sort of um, um, problem, and so this is the this is the deviation, right? You're, you're literally seeing, you're, you're actually seeing in these charts the lines being drawn and color, and they color coded them um, into different types of people, um, like you are this kind of um, sick person based on where you fall in this chart, you're that kind of sick person based on where you fall in this chart. And that was, I mean, I, I think it's frightening. And yet we still, we do that today with all kinds of things like BMI, body mass index. Um, um, I know like Julie Guthman's written a lot about that. Um, But I I think about, um, yeah, so how prevalent and freaky that is today, but how comforting that might have actually been um, in the 19th century. Uh, to say oh like this is okay this is like this it's like this identity um thing and of course then it's also completely um, uh, it's 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 creating these bodies right it's creating this um um ideal body type and reinforcing what it should be um and then i i mean Exporting that vision of what a body should be to at a national scale, um when you think about um why serial um how serial plays into it and the the impetus for designing cereal the way they did, it was to get all the bodies into the right square on the chart, or into the right cell in the chart. Um so yeah, so people would then they they would take the results of this test meal and pump their stomach with this tube and take it to the lab, do the measurements, and then and then prescribe as if it was like a medicine. They would prescribe um, what people should eat for the remainder of their stay at the sanitarium, um, and it, again, usually it was very grain-based, nuts, fruits, things like that, vegetables uh, in varying doses and quantities and. Um uh, and people would inevitably you know, get sick of eating all this like boring bland food and there were all these kind of um incognito places in town that would serve steaks and cigars and things like that. <laughs> like so it's it's kind of a funny side story that there was this like sub economy of not gross food.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so thinking about the the serial in particular uh, of course the third chapter is, uh, is about this sort of uh, serendipitous events that led to not one but at least two <laughs> contradictory stories about the um, invention um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you know the, the serial was invented how um these different stories came about.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, So there's, I guess um, I think when you say stories, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sort of interpreting that as that there was, um, there was kind of a conflict in the creation story. Um, Right.
0: Between William and John.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So these, these two um, Kellogg brothers who, again, who kind of ran the company um, for its, First 50 years, um, they, I mean, they didn't have a great relationship. um, For people who know some of the story, will will already know that fact. Um, And it, uh, so a lot of the sort of different storytelling around the invention of flaked cereal um, ended up having to do a lot with um, intellectual property, Um, like who who got. (laughs) had the rights to this um, product that was all of a sudden by the 1920s and 30s um, being exported all over the world um, and, uh, and sold as an extremely popular mass-produced, mar- mass mass-marketed uh, food product. Um, so a lot of the again, the, the kind of secondary histories or the storytellings of what happened. Um, and even going back to the, the primary documents, like the court case testimonies and things like that, they're just kind of riddled in uncertainty, um, of exactly what happened. But I, so I, in the, in the book, I try to kind of, um, triangulate between secondary histories and the, the, some of the primary documents. And, um, it's not the most important thing in, for this book on how it actually happened. Um, So I just try to do my best to to give kind of the, the important details of the story and the important details of the story are that um, at one point um, um, it's a story of John Kellogg trying to figure out which, how to make food, how to engineer foods um, quite literally, how to um, um, design and engineer foods so that they could do his um so that they could not get trapped in this auto intoxication thing um so that they could move through the body really quickly and he was just having a hard time um uh, um doing that without um the stomach um creating what he thought was like too much um acid or too much bile or too much um uh or leaving too much um sugars as byproduct that would go into the bloodstream like he didn't want any of that stuff really um so uh he uh through his way of doing these tests he's he um was tr- experimenting with different ways of baking breads and grains and um, a lot of that story kind of stems from the backstory of granola which is a whole other thing that i talk about um a little bit in the book um, but eventually they leave out this, like, um, sheet of mashed wheat, um, and, uh, it dries out, it, uh, and they, um, send it, they, they bake it and then crack it, and it turns into what to us would look something like cornflakes. Um, they were made with wheat, importantly enough, at the time, um, Um, but they, but, but it's this, um, process of you you take, you take, we, you mix it with water, you make this doughy kind of thing, um, and you flatten it out through, um, kind of like, again, what we might think of as like pasta rollers, um, that they, uh, appropriated from another, um kitchen use that they were using them for and now at the top of my head i can't remember what that was um but they 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 essentially took these um, steel rollers like two foot long steel rollers and rolled this mush through them to create the um, thinness this thin layer that could be dried out and then kind of cracked like with a hammer after baking it again into flakes and there was something about like the the um the property of the flake itself that performed the way that Kellogg wanted it to in his chemical lab analyses. Um, it left the right amount of sugar. It, um, it tended to, um, help people not make as much stomach acid when they digested. Um, and so he thought this is great for him it was this it was the miracle food right it was the thing he was looking for it put everyone in the right cell in his chart um uh and um, um or it put enough people um or it was or at the very least it was a it was a thing that he could um talk about and sell um so that that's the controversy the the controversy, the different stories are basically like well, who left out the wheat? Who put it through the rollers? Who who mashed it? Who broke the chunks off with a hammer? Uh, <laughs> and so, for me, I, I don't really care about that for for this book, uh, but I do want to represent it um, as accurately as possible, and in part because it's just it's also important to the uh, cultural history of the Seventh Day Adventist uh, Church. So, uh, you know, I want to at least do respect to that. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And then in this chapter, you also talk about the role of John's wife, Ella, specifically in the kitchen. And, and you also make this um, connection here between, you know, place and making of cuisine, you know, cuisine versus kitchen, um, some of these important differences. So, so could you talk a little bit about uh, Ella's role and, and uh, as well as like the role of the kitchen in um, and, and terms of Kellogg sanitarium and, and science?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they ran they ran an experiment kitchen, um, which is where a lot of this, including the cornflakes story that I just told, which is where a lot of that happened. Um, and um, not uh, at at some point in it was I want to say 1893. Um, his John Kellogg's wife Ella uh, became the director of that experiment kitchen so she got really i mean she bought in to what John Kellogg was trying to do. She was a huge supporter and um but she kind of took a took her own way too um with the running of the kitchen itself, so she would um you know it was kind of it was this very hierarchical thing with John Kellogg at the top, so he would say like we need this thing to happen, and then she would like try to figure out how to um um bake you know he'd say say like we need um wheat mixed with corn um baked for three days or something like really ridiculous um and add a little bit of of like tomatoes to it or something (laughs) like and then that'll be our um our bread snack for the patients tomorrow and then she would like figure out how to make that all happen um and uh, yes, but she was really into this notion of the um, the making of a cuisine, which is what they were doing, essentially. They were making their own cuisine um, as um, a very place-rooted thing. Um, and not to say like, oh, this is happening in Michigan. In terms of uh, what I mean instead is, um, this is a place rooted thing in terms of um, it It has to happen in this kitchen. Like I'm going to set up this kitchen such that the types of things that we need to make are easier to make. Um, like we have to have a certain kind of oven that gets to a certain temperature. We have to have like baking trays. We have to have like uh, places to roll out doughs and places to dry fruits and vegetables and places to um blend beans and things like that um so all, this whole like implementation is um it's the geographical um sort of moment of doing a um cuisine um uh it's not just like people here eat this kind of in this country eat this kind of food it's like um it's more like the italian cucina or a, a number of languages have this um where the um like german portuguese where they the the word for cuisine is the same word for kitchen um and so i was just kind of making that observation in the book that um it's misleading in a way in english that we have this separate words for those two things um you know one derived from from latin one derived from german um kitchen and cuisine um it's interesting that we make that distinction so predominantly in english because it kind of hides um the fact that you need the geographical place-based kitchen component in order to realize the cuisine
0: absolutely so so the kitchen and, and the tools within it are part of this extended digestive system uh landscape as as you put it so um, thinking about that another another sort of system or or um object here was the development of the uh sewer systems uh, which Kellogg played some role in um so what was his role uh in this and and why was it so important for him and and uh his sanitarium
1: yeah, and it kind of gets into um you know, the core of the book too, just, just to flag for listeners too, um, that the geography of digestion here is really that is, is really making the argument that John Kellogg's version of digestion, um, could not have happened without these very material, very spatial connections to other, um, technologies and landscapes in in Southern Michigan at the time. And so, so as you said, the, 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 the sewer system of the, town uh is a really important part of kellogg being able to practice a sterile digestion you know he this was the he was in charge of the sanitarium when the city of battle creek went from outhouses and privies um um to a a centralized water carriage sewer system um and it's not uncommon that that would happen in this time and time period in the united states Um, But what is really striking is that um, while he was um, sort of refiguring what he called the modern stomach at his sanitarium, he was also for a decade served on the board of the Michigan State Board of Health um, as a a member and got really involved in the um, design and implementation of uh, the sewer system in towns throughout Michigan uh, including of course in battle Creek. So he, you know, his, his, he, he never put it this way that I saw in any of the writings that he did. Um, but he was by his actions and by his practice actually, um, performing this kind of urban infrastructure, the, the, the making of the underground urban landscape of battle Creek as an extension of what he was doing to the to the more visceral, more fleshy tubes inside of people's bodies. Um, they were, he, he was kind of connecting those two tube systems in a way, if you want to think about it like really graphically or visually. Um, one being um, iron and the other being uh, flesh inside flesh, inside people's digestive systems. Uh, and again, that was, it it all made sense to him and and there, there is a logic to it. Um, when you get into his, his rationale, at least, um, uh, that it's like, well, if, if we want to stop, um, if we want to stop stagnation, in other words, if you want food to keep moving through the body, then we should also stop stagnation, um, in, uh, like the human waste, um, privies and outhouses um that should have a flow to it as well and indeed um it's like (laughs) it's it's interesting and fun to kind of imagine like okay so he was actually connecting like his philosophy was going from bodies to the kalamazoo river to lake michigan to the saint lawrence seaway to the atlantic ocean um you know he was like kind of doing that flow whether he wrote about it that way or not
0: yeah that's really interesting that he has this already this yeah extensive landscape uh that you know now we're talking about but then certainly uh, you know as far as i know no one else was was talking about it in that way um so th- the other part of it too being the um, nearby agriculture that he also had a, a role in, um, that, that affected the sanitarium and, and this landscape of, uh, of digestion. So what, what was so important about, um, the changes to, to agriculture at this time and, and how did it relate to Kellogg?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And this is, you're pointing toward kind of the fifth and, and last main chapter of the book. Um, um uh, which yes, is about the agricultural um hinterlands in southern Michigan that that supplied the um what became to be the mass amounts of um, wheat and then eventually corn um that that supplied all of their health food products, not least uh cereal of course um <clears throat> yeah, so the agriculture part again and it's the book if you've kind of been following along you you may have noticed that there's this kind of um um scalar um transect like you start the conversation of the book uh very much um in the stomach and the, the scientific health philosophy and then you go out to um the the food lab and then you go out again to the city and now we're going out the furthest amount to the uh, they're the f- the farthest distance we're going out to uh like the farmlands and as far away as maybe uh, other states and things like that um so we're really bringing the digestive system out away from its from its um human body at least um and uh yeah so the agriculture thing um it's interesting for a, a couple reasons one was the the introduction of um uh, or the intensification of um, me- mechanic- mechanical um, agriculture, mechanized agriculture um, was a huge part of just, um, uh, disc- you know, that that was a discourse at the time among farmers and among um, city and, and state governments and agriculture experiment stations. And um, people were really interested in, how do you pl- um, apply these notions of uh, 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 increased efficient soil utility or um, soil fertility? Um, how do you you know get the most out of your soils? How do you how can you manage more and more acres? Um, and it all taps into the, the the globalizing. It's part of the conversation of the globalizing economy of agriculture, where. Um, You were, you know, you were on this, um, what uh, a a scholar named Michael Goodman called the technological um, uh, treadmill and talked about that in terms of agriculture, where you just have to keep um, applying more and more inputs to fields um, to make them grow more and more, um, in this case, wheat and corn. Um, And uh, uh, so Kellogg... Kellogg's connection to that is the simple observation that a they were a huge consumer of these grains and so um, were benefiting from cheap and easy access to to mass market their food products um, uh, and B they were connected in a very sort of poetic geographical sense in that one of the major actually sorry two of the major um, manufacturers of Large-scale mechanized agricultural implements. Um, Advanced Thresher Company and Nichols and Shepherd Farm Machinery Company um, were both based in Battle Creek. So down the road from, <laughs> from, from the health sanitarium, you had the, the the wrought iron factories that were pumping out thousands of threshers and, and combines and um, harvesting machines. They were exported all over the country, really, but mostly the Midwest, but all over the country um, um, so that um, farmers could um, kind of um, take part in their, or participate in this, um, what what we now now know as the death of the family farm and the rise of um, industrial agriculture. So the health food was um, um, uh, a reaction Against, um, sort of a local, <laughs> a local organic farm. And, and Kellogg wanted to replace that ecology and that ecosystem with this large scale, sterile, um, <clears throat> type of, of agriculture that promised, at least for him, and he, the promise that he made was that, um, it would, it would, um, that, that food was better for you, basically. And I think that's a really interesting point um, that I kind of came across in doing this research is that um, while, while um, our our sort of national consciousness reaction um, against industrial agricultural agriculture these days is that we should react against it and do something different, um, which um, I believe we should, um, but it comes from sort of the same spirit that Kellogg was coming from in that and that spirit is there's something terribly wrong with our food system and we need to do something different. You know, Kellogg was saying that and he did went towards industrial agriculture. We're saying that now going against <laughs> industrial agriculture. So it's just like a neat, it's a neat kind of historical reminder to just be careful of like um, 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 the, the precedent for your, your kind of rationale or, or the way you're, uh, thinking about um food systems.
0: Yeah, in the in the epilogue you you say something along the lines of biodiversity of the gut is a political move. So I was wondering if you could speak on that and, and really just how you know besides what you just spoke about, um how this story relates to today's ideas around around health and and um food production and things like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, so the, the politics of the book and I, I tend to, just my style and my personality is that I'm I'm um I'm not heavy handed with the politics, but there but there is a strong politics to the book, really, which is that um that um we should not think of human health as something confined to the body inside the skin as we know it. Human health is um, always inextricab- and inextricably entwined with the landscapes that surround us that we look at. And we can use those landscapes, in fact, to read the health of human bodies. And that's what I'm trying to do really in this book is um, give a little like methodological um, practice for how we could might actually do that. Well, how do you read into someone's body by looking at a landscape. Uh, And that's really, even though the Kellogg story is the case study, the sort of methodological practice move is to do exactly that. And to me, that's, that's the political move too, is that um, like, Hey, let's pay attention when we have conversations about public health and, um, or individual health, like people like with cancer, like let's talk about, Let's talk about on a, on a large scale or over a population scale, at least. Let's talk about the landscapes where people live first um, um, or in addition to the like individual cancerous body because they're, they're they have to be tied together.
0: Well, Nicholas, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just wanted to wrap up with our traditional last question here. Um, what, what project are you working on now? What's next for you?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so after um, I wrote this book, um, I actually did a whole a whole um, other project that was very different. Um, that was based um, in the American Desert Southwest. Um, it's a it's a project about the um, uh, visual history of the Grand Canyon, actually in Arizona. <laughs> and um, that project is also finished. It's called Enchanting the Desert. Um, but my what I'm working on now is is related very much to that Southwest desert um, theme. Um, I'm doing some work um, with some historical documents uh, in the Mojave desert in uh, Southern California, uh, the desert between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Um,
0: That's where I'm from. No way.
1: Great. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, We'll have to talk about that then. Um, uh, And um, doing some, uh, again, looking at some historical documents um, from the USGS about that region um but interestingly enough um um i'm have i'm I'm really interested in something that came up in the geography of digestion book was this this notion of how do you do do how do you translate these concepts in geography and in sts and in history of science um like network um like landscape like um like like space um and there, there are many theorizations of how these things work. And one of the things over the past five or six years that I've really noticed and gotten um, really into <laughs> is what are the uh, what are the visual articulations of some of those ideas? So often they appear in um, textual form, um, and um, I'm really interested in how you take something like like this concept of network. Um, specifically as it's applied in geographical theory building um, and visualize it um, with the aim of um, then further strengthening the way we're using our spatial metaphors, things like spatial metaphor being something like network. But there's also other metaphors like hybridity or verticality. Um, There's lots of things floating around again, like geography, STS, Um, environmental humanities, there's a lot of these spatial metaphors that are going um, unvisually examined. And so, um, actually, this fall, I'm beginning, um, uh, I'm I'm retooling, actually, I'm going back to school and beginning a Master of Fine Arts program uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, where I'll be exploring exactly those themes and making um, some visualizations um, based on on the geographic uh, theory that I know and like so much.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you.
1: This has been great to talk to you, Chad.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, we've been talking to Nicholas Bouch about uh, a geography of digestion, biotechnology in the Kellogg Serial Enterprise by UC Press. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, Nicholas.
1: Thank you. Really a pleasure.
0: I really enjoyed it. Uh, take care.